1: It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to FYI, ARC's Four Year Innovation Podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Alex Kahana. Alex was last on the podcast two years ago in the depths of the COVID lockdown. And we're really excited to have him back on to, to talk about how the world has changed and all things surrounding the convergence between healthcare and blockchain technology. Uh, Alex is very close to Arc; He's a theme developer uh, in Arc's open research ecosystem. And I hope you enjoy the conversation today. Hello and welcome to Arc's FYI podcast, the For Your innovation podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Alex Kahana. Alex is a, is a doctor, an ambassador to the UN for blockchain, and as well as a theme developer for Arc. Uh, and this is Alex's second time on the podcast, so we're very happy to have you back. Uh, could you refresh our listeners on your background and, and give an update on what you're up to
2: these days? Sure. Well, it's great to be here, and thank you again for uh, inviting me. What, what a two years have we uh, went through? So uh, for those who uh, hadn't seen the previous one or don't remember, uh, my name is Dr. Alex Kahana. I am a physician by training and anesthesiologist, actually a pain doctor, and I had the privilege to build, uh, I would say, five pain centers around the world, in Israel, in Japan, and Switzerland, and the United States, so it's uh, safe to say that I'm familiar with uh, global healthcare as an industry, and uh, I've been involved in uh, technology integration in the clinical workflow for, I don't know, forever, before it was even called the thing, before there was cloud, before there was these ideas of biohacking and quantified self. I've been um, with ARC since 2014, and that's where I got uh, sensitized not only to what usually as physicians, we are in uh, genomics, immunology, AI, machine learning, uh, but also got bit by the bug of of blockchain, crypto, and, and decentralized technologies. And ever since I say that I'm on a mission to uh, blockchain healthcare and healthify the crypto space, so it goes both ways. To introduce these decentralized technologies to healthcare, but also sensitize those who are interested in uh, crypto and in blockchain about the use cases in, in healthcare. And um, you can you can realize that that you can imagine that's a, a very busy uh, and interesting life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know very diverse background and probably a lot we could dive into next. But before we go, you know, too deep down the blockchain crypto rabbit hole, I'd love to give your take just on how the world has changed over the past two years since we last had you on, uh, both in general uh, and from a from a medical healthcare perspective as well as blockchain technology.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, I think that if anything, everybody feels that the world has changed and is changing. Uh, it may have accelerated something that already had started. Some point uh, to 2008, others point to 2001 or even before that. But it's clear that um, this idea of uh, globalization and this small village world has changed dramatically since the pandemic. Uh, this, this if you want, almost biological warfare on our, on our existence as human beings. So we're kind of thinking on the not only frailties and unsustainabilities of the way we live, but also what relationship do we have with each other, with the planet? You know, for a moment, we didn't do anything. There was like a total economic standstill. And the planet was was healing. And suddenly, you know, there's no carbon offset and animals are growing and forests are recovering. Now we're starting to recover. So again, Climate pressure is starting to start again. So I think that it really, uh, in in a macro level, causes us to revisit a couple of assumptions, um, be it macroeconomic, socioeconomic, political. Specifically in healthcare, I think it accelerated a lot of things. It's a little bit different what happened in high-income countries or what I call obese economies like the United States and Europe and perhaps Singapore, Japan, and Korea versus the lean economies, be it middle, low-to-middle income or low-income countries that have experienced COVID very, very differently. And I think that that has also influenced, I would say, on the development of uh, use cases that pertain to blockchain. So last time we talked, I think there were maybe hundred coins or a couple of hundred coins. And there was either utility tokens that were verboten in the United States. So everybody was talking about security tokens. And now suddenly there's so much more. And we're talking about stable coins and our recent algorithms (laughs) and NFTs and metaverse and web through. So there's a real richness to the ecosystem, a technology richness that you feel that we're in the middle of building, maybe a more uh, resilient and sustainable internet or uh, digital world in face of the challenges that that COVID has uh, um, put in front of us.
0: Yeah, I, I really agree with those observations. And especially within the crypto space, seeing how it's evolved in the past two years, or even since you know, 2018, 2017, it seems like the narratives, there's a lot more of them now. The Crypto is a much more diverse space. There's not just cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, not just stable coins. There's this world of decentralized finance. There's Web3 and gaming and NFTs. It seems like there's a lot of different kind of micro economies that are all building up. It's really interesting that you focus on uh, the combination of healthcare and blockchain. I'd love to hear your take on uh, why healthcare needs blockchain and Why just rebuilding the existing technology system on centralized infrastructure isn't enough?
2: Well, that's such a great question. I think I can talk about that, uh, you know, uh, forever. But I would say that uh, if anything, what COVID did was that a whole bunch of folks picked up the phone and said to me, Alex, remember those things you were talking about that we never paid attention to? I think we need to pay attention to. can, Can you explain it a little better? And I think that the main reason why healthcare needs blockchain and honestly, blockchain needs healthcare. Blockchain can only be a impetus for societal change only if it includes in it real products that change the way we interact with our health and wellness is because it is illusionary to talk about mental health and physical health without talking about financial health and that connection. It's it's more than social determinants of health. It's more of saying, okay, if you're poor and you're and you live in an unsafe community that is exposed to pollution and clean, you know, no access to clean food, clean water, clean air, you might suffer from. This is way beyond that. What what we're talking about is that we cannot think on the concept of thriving in a world without really also uh, talking about the aspects the financial aspects of health. I think that uh, there's a big difference between the work that I'm doing in Africa and Latin America versus the work that I'm doing in Europe and in the United States. But uh, I would say blockchain can do a lot of things and uh, because healthcare is is, uh, so vast and heavily regulated, different people find different features that they can leverage on distributed ledger technology. So if uh, let's say hospitals are worried about supply chain, then they can find uh, advantages in using distributed ledgers. Uh, If uh, um, universities or researchers have difficulties with credentialing, the sovereign identity or the uh, type of digital identity that blockchain can provide is a great solution. Clinical trials can seem to be more more seamless and uh, more uh, frictionless with the use of these type of uh, uh, interoperable agnostic ledgers uh, or platforms that we're using. People see or different stakeholders in healthcare see different problems that can be solved with with blockchain. But the real secret sauce in uh, uh, um, Blockchain, in my opinion, is the idea of tokenization. It's the idea that health data has value and that if you own it, then that uh, value can be translated into something that can be exchanged and can be traded. And so you're transforming people from being health consumers, because this is what we do right now. We just consume health, right? A, A pill for every ill, a test for every pest, if you're going to be healthy, that's not helpful for a doctor. I need you to be sick so that we can continue and 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 have the system work. If we can actually tokenize the information that is derived from your data and that you can benefit from it monetarily, that's sort of kind of like universal health income, if you wish, based on the merits of, okay, I'm not drinking, I'm not smoking, I'm not, you know, uh, um, using drugs, so I'm not talking about some $50 a year from an insurance because I save them 25,000 by not using, you know, Oxycontin. I'm talking about real income that can be generated from healthy behaviors. And so I think that the the secret sauce or the Trojan horse, if you wish, attribute to to blockchain as a technology is the idea of tokenization. And that can be organized in a DAO, in a distributed autonomous organization where different stakeholders can organize themselves and I would say uh, surround or crystallize themselves around a common mission.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredibly fascinating. And it's this convergence between what blockchain and uh, crypto uh, economics can provide to the existing healthcare system that I think is really interesting. I'm wondering your take on how we can do this tokenizing health data in a privacy-preserving manner. Uh, Does that exist in a world of public ledgers?
2: I think there are two aspects uh, to it. One, there is a conceptual aspect, and the second one is a technology aspect. So I'll start with the technology because actually that's quite straightforward. And the short answer is yes, that we live now in a time where there are different technologies, not just blockchain, but Technologies in cryptography, uh, privacy-preserving technologies, where you don't have to expose your data in order to know and analyze it, like zero-knowledge proof or zero-knowledge cryptography. Um, there are cybersecurity technologies out there, like homomorphic encryption or uh, uh, um, hardware solutions uh, that can compartmentalize data and and and, and provide you know safe access to it. So, so in terms of the technology itself, I think that there are a lot of smart people that are able to say, okay, how can we manage the data in a way that remain it remains private and secure? And a good example is, for example, the, the federated learning, which is a brilliant idea, instead of the data going, you know, you're sending it to the central repository, this Watson that does I don't know what in a black box and can be used, abused or lost or whatnot. Here you have the algorithm visiting if you want, like house visits to each hospital clinic or home and learning and creating that master algorithm as it trains and learns the different uh, facilities and each one can you know uh, preserve their own IP and secret So, So I think that the technology out there, there's enough um, stuff software and hardware that exists that were good on the security and and privacy issues i think that where we lack completely is the basic concept of data ownership and this is really where we're stuck most people and and it's not just i would say government or regulatory bodies or large hospitals or research consortiums even people like uh, Consumers or users like you and me don't have this automatic reflex that my data is mine. A simple assertion that the data that I create, okay, I am my actions. And my actions generate data. The data is captured. It belongs to me. So when, when, when Fitbit or uh, 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 Ura or any other wearable captures it, It's mine. It's not theirs. But that's not how the business model works. And so you have a whole data marketplace where they are selling, I assume that I signed yes, accept on page 57 with font three. But that's not right. That's not fair. And so it's not that they shouldn't get anything, but the default shouldn't be that I get nothing. So the main problem is that we don't look at data as money, now, I'm not talking about monetization of data. I'm talking about data as money, which means it's private, it's yours, it sits in a secure wallet. You want to access it whenever, whatever, for whatever reason, and you have the the expectation that its value will accrue. So you invest in it and in its quality, and you want to maybe inherit it to your nears and dears or donate it to society. We don't have that reflex. And as long as we don't have that reflex of self-sovereignty, that the data belongs to me, then the business models that, you know, go around token economics are very hard to imagine because nobody thinks that, uh, what do you mean 23andMe are supposed to pay me a check on stuff that they sent, you know, to, 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 to Glasgow, I don't know, to, to GSK or whatnot, or... So, so I think that there's a fundamental mentality shift or mind shift that has to come into understanding where the data, you know, who the data belongs to, who is the owner of that data. And then after that, we could talk about legal or regulatory frameworks that come with it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, I'm wondering like, how do we get from where we are today to that world? Will the traditional, will 23 Me and Fitbit, uh, you know, change their business models or will there be new companies that, that capitalize on these new, uh, you know, tokenomics uh, that, that supersede the existing incumbents?
2: Well, I think there are three steps to this. Uh, one is education. That's why this podcast is so important. That's why, you know, it's very difficult to talk to people of, so do you think blockchain is a good thing for healthcare? And they have no concept of self-sovereign identity, uh, data illiquidity, uh, 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 tokenomics, DAOs, you know, it's like, what words are you using? I don't even know what you're talking about. So uh, I'm spending, as you can imagine, a lot of my time, if not most of my time, to teach or to translate these concepts into metaphors that people can understand. And so I'll just digress for a second. But to give you an example is to say that NFTs, because people just don't know how to wrap their head around it. They say it's games. It's something I don't care. I'm not, you know, I'm not into music or art or whatnot. I say NFTs are to Web 3.0 what websites are to Web 2.0. That's it. So just like you have websites that are really smart and you spend time and uh, uh, you learn a lot. And then there are websites that are silly. And although you know you're not supposed to spend time, you just enjoy doing it. And then there are websites that are super dangerous that if you click on them, you get totally hacked. It's the same thing with NFTs. They're good NFTs. They're silly NFTs and they're dangerous NFTs. So I think that the first step of course is education. You really have to start to educate people about these concepts, and the, the most uh, basic one or fundamental one is that data is yours, first of all. So that that that's that 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 issue. The second step is uh, really to um, address the problems that each of the stakeholders see right now in healthcare. So if there's the only thing that everybody can agree about is that this doesn't work, whatever this is. So I talk to governments, I talk to federal and state agencies, I talk in the United Nations, I talk to hospitals, to doctors, to, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, small practices, large multi-practices, everybody says this is not working. So you try to understand what is not working for them and try to pick the salient features that decentralization solves and then sensitize them so i wouldn't start for example with a pharma company to do price discovery on token bond curves uh, because that's not an issue for them they decide you know pricing the way they wanted to so that's not an issue for them but for the for example for them is clinical trials and completion adherence and so if you're able to say with blockchain, you can make sure that real world evidence has clinical trial, FDA quality research you know, uh, data and that you can get to the most remote places, then that starts to be interesting. And so you have to choose what are the salient features That decentralization can offer either, uh, it could be totally private, it could be totally public, it could be a a, a hybrid public-private chain. So that's the second phase. And then the third phase is to really derive from that sustainable business models. And it'll look very different in each market. So for example, the reason why in Africa and in Latin America this works is because they have nothing. They have no access to care. So whatever you offer, it's better than what they have now. You know, cash is trash for them. And so uh, if you can offer bank the unbanked, you can digitize their ledgers, you can jump, you know, almost like leapfrog them from analog to Web3, that's great for them. And it would be very different than if you would go in the United States, even within the United States, very different than what I'm doing here in New York than if I would go to a rural part of a Midwestern state where it is a, a uh, they don't have broadband and it is a food desert and they have very limited access to care. So I don't, I don't see this as an all or none, phen- none phenomenon, but rather trying to, instead of saying disintermediation, I, I use the word re-intermediation. And instead of using the word interoperability, I use intercooperability. And instead of using the word uh, competition, I use coepetition, which is collaborative competition. So we have to start to change in order to, you know, it's very Kuhnian, you know, very Thomas Kuhn when he talked about paradigm shift, is you have to create a language before you can actually speak of a different way of doing things.
0: Yeah, that that's really interesting. I love the the emphasis on on the terminology and coming to the right way to to explain these to to different audiences. And I think kind of your work in Saharan Africa is really interesting. First of all, I, I know you're an ambassador to the GBBc Global Blockchain Business Council. My first question is, what is that organization? And my second is, uh, are these Kind of what you just shared learnings that you 've had from from conversations on the ground in africa and and what is the typical reaction that you get there
2: yes so so uh, i uh, GBbc, which stands for global blockchain business council is is an industry association uh, for blockchain technology and it started uh, in, I think in Switzerland you know in Davos uh, close to uh, uh, five years ago or six years ago, I, I joined uh, last year and uh, really they're doing excellent work in terms of what I talked about uh, uh, block changing healthcare and healthifying the crypto space. So introducing dialogue with industry leaders, creating taxonomy and standards that are so important, especially when you talk to, uh, you know, a B2B ecosystem. And because they're worldwide, they understand the sensitivity of different political systems, different uh, legislative landscapes, and also cultural sensitivities. My work in Africa started before GBS. My work in Africa started years ago on the heels of Ebola before there was even COVID and uh, simply by a friend of mine who works at the WHO that I knew through my work at the United Nations. And she said, "Um, Alex, there's wonderful things happening in Africa. You got to go see this. I have a love to Africa that goes back to my military service decades ago uh, when I visited Africa. Uh, But this was like, wow, okay, this is a great opportunity to see what's going on on the ground. And it was fascinating, and especially fascinating when COVID started. And I always, I always joke that I almost got stuck in Africa. It would have been wonderful for the whole COVID, you know, just being there. And, and when I say that Africa in general dealt with COVID way better than uh, other parts of the world, then nobody believes me. And they say, well, you can't trust their numbers. They're fudging their numbers. Uh, what they're saying, uh, you know, what they're saying is not true. I said, no, that's actually what we did. We fudged our numbers. You know, we showed, you know, censorship and collusion in terms of data. And it's clear now we, we passed the, the very sad uh, milestone of one million deaths, which everybody who has ever treated anyone with COVID knows that it is a, a, a critical underestimate of really what happened. And so what is amazing in Africa and through COVID, I learned three things. One is that uh, they have experience. They went through multiple pandemics and, you know, choose it. Ebola, and dengue, and yellow fever, and malaria, and HIV, and not all of them are pandemics. Many of them are endemic in different regions, but they have very robust public health services there. And the Africa CDC is uh, forced to reckon with. And the second part of it is also that people put faith in their CDC. And so no one there is exercising their constitutional right to cough on someone or whatever. You know, it's like when everybody says that these are the recommendations, then everybody follows. It was fascinating to see how everybody was masking and gelling, even in areas where social distancing was impossible. Rural areas where there's population density, that is simply not a thing. Nonetheless, they were able to uh, maintain a certain hygiene that we were unsuccessful in doing. And the last is also not to forget that half of the continent, the 1.3 billion continent, is under the age of 30. So, you know, when they talk to me, I'm like this old geezer. I, I don't feel very old, but definitely when I'm d- there, it's like, oh, my God, if I get to your age, you know, that means that uh, something went horribly wrong in my life. So, so, so they are young. And talking about blockchain, they are what I would call intuitive blockchain enthusiasts. So their local customs of working in a community table banking, uh, how they provide uh, financial services to the unbanked, the electronic money, M-PESA. They were using M-PESA or Orange Pay a decade before we even started to think and we were just using paper money as uh, disease uh, vectors for, for everyone. So in that sense, it's counterintuitive to think of them as very advanced in this decentralized world. So if anything, it has been extremely, I would say, straightforward in terms of implementation. They understand the idea of a community token. And of course, once you talk about government and government is government everywhere, and then they have to kind of say, okay, uh, do I want to do this and risk my IMF or World Bank loan because they're not going to like it? Or, you know, so there's a whole host of issues of governance, but the average African herself or himself or themselves are very comfortable with these concepts of peer-to-peer networking, of peer-to-peer communication, of peer-to-peer exchange. And uh, I see great potential for quick adoption and, and, and actually it's happening already.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I think we see time and time again that those, those in need of a better solution seek out innovative solutions and are often the early adopters of the next wave. Um, I think I've seen recent surveys that the even the, the general crypto adoption across Africa is much higher than the average across the rest of the world. And I think that also speaks to that.
2: That is absolutely correct. And, and I, I, that's why I like to word, use the word, the terminology obese versus lean economies, when you have a lean economy you don't have time to experiment with things that might not work so you know if you make a dollar a day uh five cents or ten cents fees it's too much so i don't care that every time every credit card transaction i'm doing here in the city i'm shaved off for seven intermediaries on every single transaction But if I would pay attention to every dollar expended, then I would. And you're absolutely right that not only are they looking for solutions and hybrid solutions that are centralized and decentralized to make sure that they're in compliance, regulatory compliance, but also that there's this innate energy and curiosity to develop these things. And one of the things that I made sure in my work in technology is not only that I'm confident that Africa will be and should be a technology exporter, especially to other markets, but that every time we import a bag of rice into Africa, we import unemployment. So I am very mildly interested in implementing technologies that were designed on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States with very little understanding on what they're going through. And on the other hand, uh, support technologies that are built in Africa by Africans for Africa. And I venture that technology hubs that are developing that capacity, that are developing blockchain developers, that are creating crypto traders, that are creating miners, uh, that's actually going to be instead of universities which are too expensive, frictionful, and are not nimble or agile enough to give decent work that can insert people into an economy that we see actually here when we look at secondary education.
0: Yep, it's it's pretty incredible. I think this is probably a great time to transition to the other side of the world on a different continent because there's been another major development since we last Connected on the podcast, which is that El Salvador, the first country, has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Can you walk us through that development from your point of view and what that means?
2: Sure, sure. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I went there. I went to Bitcoin Beach. I met Mike Peterson. I met Bo. I met, I met the people that, that that you know firsthand because there's always a difference between what you read and what you hear versus when you actually on the ground and understand the things that happen. And I think you cannot understand the adoption of Bitcoin in El Salvador without understanding the politics of that country or the political climate. So uh, just in a nutshell, because I won't go over all the history of uh, um, El Salvador, which I studied before I went there, is that basically, as of 2021, El Salvador was one of the poorest countries in Central America that was, if you want, without their own national uh, currency. They were dollarized in the early 2000s. And like Ecuador, like Panama, use the US dollar as their currency. So they're dependent on whatever monetary policies are in the United States. So if you wish, they are, uh, are like an economic colony of the U.S. And the second one is that they have been spending um, about $6 billion a year on remittances fees. And remittances uh, from families who fled the Civil War in the 80s to the U.S., Uh, represents 30% of their GDP. So that's that's heavy tax on a poor country, $6 billion in order to enrich the U.S. banking system. And so what they were seeking is de-dollarization and getting rid of remittances, uh, remittance fees, because less fees is more money in the hands of El Salvadorians. So that's really the reason behind it. Now, I'm not going to go into the politics of is he a dictator or not, and Bukele and how he would, because that's politics and people have, you know, different experiences and thoughts. And But he did get a super majority, which allowed him to implement and say, I want to de- de-dollarize and I want to decrease the amount of fees that are going into these transactions. And we can discuss if it was a good idea that, uh, he adopted Bitcoin and not some stable coin or didn't create a CBDC or something else. Or, But, but the idea was that uh, communities that are cash poor, that were unbanked, that had no access to financial services, could actually now, with their phone, access these type of services. Now, uh, the rollout has been... Uh, I would say mixed. Uh, there are clear technical problems which are anticipated. There's a lot of, I would say, education that needs to happen. And so skepticism, especially in countries of Central America that suffered from government corruption, is a thing. But I can also say that the uh, global, the world economic ecosystem, Uh, has not been friendly. It's not friendly to crypto in general. It's not friendly to Bitcoin. And it's devastating when it's not friendly to a country that's basically trying to gain financial independence. It's almost like it's not okay that that's what they're trying to do. And again, I'm not going to go into politics of why uh, certain people here think that it's important to dollarize you know, that the dollar remains the dominant currency in the world for military reasons, political reasons. We have a war going on in Europe that would have looked very different if if the dollar wouldn't be that dominant. But specifically to El Salvador, I think that because blockchain is such a Trojan horse technology, is that even if the intention was pure dictatorship, And it was a strong bet. Let's take the worst case scenario of what we see here written in the papers, which I don't feel that that's what's happening on the ground. Still, people are getting a whiff of financial freedom. And so you build digital literacy and financial literacy in an impoverished community that before that didn't know. So it's like the, what is it, Plato's allegory of the cave. Suddenly you're out of the cave. It's like, oh my God, this is the world. It's not some some shadows that someone's manipulating for me. And this financial freedom which I think a lot of people here in the United States don't have is going to unleash something that perhaps central governments are not interested of it to be unleashed. So whether bitcoins are for millionaires or bitcoin are for the millions, you know that that's a separate conversation, but it's fascinating that as you remark the situation in Africa and in Latin America are not the same. And in Africa, they are very financial savvy. They've been using mobile infrastructures for transactions for long before even we did. And so for them, the what blockchain brings in, I would say the society elements, like to organize themselves in DAO, like to, organize themselves with community savings, insurance savings, DeFi, liquidity pool, staking, all those things. In Latin America, it's the opposite, that they have a very strong agriculture, kind of in families, and, the, and so when Bitcoin Beach started, it was like, wow, this is great. Instead of going to San Salvador with duffel bags to pull out you know, cash from an ATM and hope I'm not being killed on the way, for them, the idea of rallying around a community for education, for transportation, for elderly care, for uh, spiritual services—that was a done deal. It was that they just don't have the financial savvy that we saw, for example, in places like Nairobi or Lagos or Ottawa.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think you know I think it's very fair to criticize the rollout and that there there could have been more education. There needs to be more education, but ultimately. Public blockchains and Bitcoin in particular is a is a global and credibly neutral technology that anybody can plug into and start using. And so whether you know you question the intentions of the, the president or not, he may have short-term power gains from changing the currency and, and how this is released. But in the long run, giving is giving up monetary control to a, a global network that nobody has, no one party has control of. Uh, which is the really interesting thing that clicks when you realize that you know you ha- you may get short term benefit from it, but the long term is a is a fixed uh, and set monetary policy that anybody can can latch onto and use.
2: I, I think that's a that's a very good observation, and um, to uh, I would say calm the the critiques of those who think that Bitcoin specifically or cryptocurrencies in more general terms as a currency or store of value or creating defi as an alternative financial system to tradfire what we have right now i would say that they should look at this this transition from web 2.0 to web 3.0 like is like parenting so in the beginning you're you're all hands on Okay. a toddler. There's like there's there's no real decentralization over there, right? You you feed you you change diapers. You're all over. You don't want them to fall. You childproof the house. You know it's like there's nothing decentralized. But you teach them, right? You put in algorithms, and they get better with time. The beginning they don't understand, and they it, it, get, it get it gets hacked or exploited or misused. But the hope is at some time, at some point, the algorithm will be strong enough to stress test in the real world and interact with the real world. And so you need to transform from an owner to something that, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll always, my child will carry my last name, but they're their own person. And I think that if we start to understand that decentralization is a parenting process. We understand that at some point, leaders need to transition from being omnipresent leaders that want to do everything into facilitators and educators to let people, average people, have the digital and financial literacy to do things. And it's very interesting because we always say that all the legislation that is around protection, right, is because we don't think that average people can deal with it. But when you ask yourself, like, can I, of course I can do it. Of course, of course you, Frank, can do it. Of course, everybody at ARCA, so who are the people that can't do it? Who are the the people that are uh, too infantile to know what's good for them, health-wise or financially? So if I would ask you, Frank, who's the best person that would know what's good for them in health? You'd say, of course, only me. Only I know what's good for me. But then I would say, well, as a doctor, I know I think you can't t- – I, I have to take care of you because you can't take care of me. So I think that that's that transition, and that's why the idea of data ownership is so important. And we can see the parallels of it in the health world and in the research world and the academic world, as well as when we see in the financial world and when we talk about sophisticated or accredited or – People who can invest versus, yeah, people who just—we uh, need to protect them from from what? From themselves. So this is what what the when I talk about financial freedom that 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 Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency gives, it's that.
0: So I'll I'll continue your analogy. What do you make of the the hover parents that won't let go? And I think in this case, it reminds me of the IMF, which is not extremely happy with El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. And I'm sure that the UN isn't either. What is the situation there? And and will these tides change or will these uh, global bodies uh, continue to be resistant to kind of letting their child go?
2: Yeah, I think that there are two parts to it. Um, One is a self-serving part that systems uh, trust agents that were created with time uh, like bankers, investment banks, IMF you know what they're, they're trust agents you know the idea of having them was that life is so complicated that you need an expert to help you out. But the idea was that that trust agent actually their main thing is to help themselves you know to it, it help you and instead they' they're, they're helping themselves. So I think that there's this general and this is not just IMF or World Bank but also a lot of philanthropies, and, charities and, and and big foundations that are not teaching to fish, but just giving fish. And and it it has a tinge of uh, post-colonial flavor to it. So first of all, there's a, definitely post-colonialism going around. And we can go back into history and look at the history of Europe and Africa, and we can look at the history of the U.S. in Central and Latin America, and we can start to but that's like a never-ending story. So I, I try to avoid or to attribute sinister or politically motivated reasons of why institutes don't want things to change and just say, assume that they want whatever change to do that happened, that it would really be not abused and would not, you know, have people worse off. So one of the important Perspectives that the UN uh, looks at is SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, and I actually think that that's a very healthy way to look at things. And I'm specifically in a commission; it's called the CFAC Commission. It's you know for electronic trading and business and stuff like that. So it's all about taxonomies, One of the most boring things that you can imagine. But but the point being is that if things help SDGs. G3, A, 10, 16.1, so, so health, equality, thriving economies, digital identity. If that solution promotes that, then that's a good thing. I think that uh, when I talk to people, and this is to answer your question, will they change in all this? Anybody who is interested or knows a little bit about um, the theory of change, I always say that when I, when I talk... I give a podcast like this, the audience will have one of three reactions. Either they'll say, wow, what Dr. Kahana is saying is exactly what I think. He's just saying it so eloquently. So that's one way of saying it. Others will say, wow, if he's right, we're in trouble. And there'll be ones who will say, why am I listening to this? This is so not interesting. This is so pie in the sky. Who is this guy to say these things? And so I think that every listener just has to ask themselves, where are they? And so obviously, if in, the, in the third uh, uh, category, they're the pre-contemplative phase. There's no problem. Why would there be a problem? So, do I think that the people that are now sitting in Davos think that they have a problem? No. They think that the world is in trouble, but anybody who can afford Davos, you know, is not in trouble. And they can say, okay, maybe I shouldn't come with my private jet. I'll come in a a commercial flight or with a train. That's their contribution to climate. So uh, there are a lot of people that genuinely and in positions of power, obviously, don't really uh, appreciate or see the problem. Then there are those who understand the problem perfectly and are benefiting from this. So in healthcare, the business model is simple. The D2C is consumption and the B2B B is data asymmetry. So if blockchain changes, the D2C that people will consume less, then it's horrible. We don't want blockchain. And if it's going to uh, uh, create data symmetry and so suddenly all these third party data hoarders, warehouses, I don't know what, uh, It's going to change the dynamics of power. They don't want that too. No more than energy companies want to go into renewables or, you know, change the relationship with the planet. So there are these groups of people where you have to provide them a compelling argument or compelling arguments for a new business model, not attribute morality, not say you're evil or not, but okay, there's a different model that we can use. I don't recall the 11th commandment saying, thou shall be paid only if you have a test. Maybe the 11th commandment should be, thou shall be paid if you stay healthy. So we just have to change a little bit the business model. And then for those who agree, it's on them, on each and every one to spread the word. Because still adoption is low not because of lack of merit. It is because understanding this requires a conscious effort to develop a digital and financial literacy that we usually don't have. You actually have to learn stuff. You have to learn how the world works and before you change it. And that's something that for many people uh, is tough. So if you can't be bothered because you're too comfortable, then the world is fine. But if you're not, like in developing economies or emerging markets, then you start to see what can be redesigned and you bring a compelling business model. Because like I said in the beginning, you cannot seriously talk about physical health and mental health without talking about financial health and financial health can be inclusive and uh, still be very profitable for those right now that are exercising extractive, rent-seeking, centralized business models.
0: Absolutely. I think we always say that, you know, change happens very fast. And it usually happens, it takes the feet out of those who aren't paying attention uh, by those who are kind of on this cutting edge frontier and, and really actively seeking education, which is why we've built a, our entire open research, research ecosystem around uh, transparency and education and, and podcasts like these where I'm continually learning through the entire process, uh, which is awesome. I'd love to ask you, you know, looking ahead uh, in the next two to five years, where is the space going? Healthcare and blockchain, crypto, the world at large, where do you see us heading?
2: There's not a day that goes by that um, I don't ask myself that question. Some days I'm more depressed than others, I have to admit. But I wrote, I wrote recently a post, uh, I coined it, uh, it was on LinkedIn, it was, it was called Health 3.0. And I borrowed it from the web 3.0. And the idea was, that um, it should be uh, uh, ownership help. That, that again, it, it talks about these um, features that if we apply them to our uh, identity, to our data, it can really bring us uh, freedom that otherwise uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't exist. And, and I think that uh, really that, that's where um, the future is. I would say that I'm trying to think, you know, um, what are the trends, you know, guess what are the trends that, 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 that are coming out? And the ones that excite me most really are uh, about the new way we interact with the digital world and the way we interact with the internet and the way we interact with each other. I belong to a certain generation where um, the physical world was dominant. So it's not intuitive to me that the digital world is more real than the physical world. But I look at my 16-year-old and I I totally understand that. And so she interacts with the digital world um, with her friends in real life, with virtual friends, with a community in a very different way than I could imagine. And so to um, discount it or discard it or to give it a grade, it's good or bad or not, I think is silly. So I think that healthcare, especially because of COVID with the social distancing, with discovering the remote work, with discovering that stuff we had to do, oh my God, I would, I would fly, you know, to Taiwan for a one-hour meeting. So, you know, 65 hours of flight just to think about not only what it did to the planet, but what it did to my health and my back, and I don't know. So I think now uh, we have, uh, COVID has proven us that we can do things differently, at least, if not the same quality of a different parallel quality. And that's why I get excited about three things. I get excited about the metaverse. As a pain doctor, of course, I understand uh, immersive technologies very well. There's this thing called phantom limb pain. It's where you feel pain in an arm or a hand or a leg that you don't have anymore. So it's fascinating because basically what I'm telling you is that the brain doesn't need a body to feel pain. So, you know, if you take my brain out of a body, put it on a table, it will probably complain. So, so you ask yourself, do we need a physical reality in order to experience things? So for me, this whole idea of AR, VR, MR, XR is just intuitively fascinating. And I think that we can recruit the brain to do wonderful things. And I was one of the first that actually treated amputees from the, from the military with mirrors and stuff before there were oculus uh, uh, goggles. So so there's that element of the metaverse. But then, of course, there's the whole element of the interaction and the creation of started a second life. I remember when it came out. But this whole gaming, we called it serious gaming because we wanted to be taken seriously. So I'm extremely interested to see how that engages. How do we engage? Now it's gaming, so it's between friends or peers. How would that look in a professional context? Visit a doctor. I know that telehealth now is growing, so can we do it? And enhance that experience so it won't be just this boring Zoom back and forth, but maybe we can... Enrich that environment with avatars, with digital twins and things of that sort. So that's one thing that I'm really fascinating. And uh, the second is DAOs, the distributed autonomous organizations, which is basically a new way or maybe an old way. You know, I wrote about it that I came back from um, the Amazons. I was a couple of weeks there and I see the most remote Communities in the jungle that are hunters and gatherers, and the way they organize themselves are like a Dao. And the way they they arrive to consensus is like a Dow. And the way they arbitrage is like a Dow. And, and, and they and they perform quadratic voting. They don't call it that. It's a totally non-digital world. Which led me to think that maybe, maybe in the history of humanity, that what we're experiencing now is the extraordinary. Is that these, I don't know if you want to call it, how far you want to go, 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years of written history that more and more and more move to centralization and production and economies of commodities and capitalism, hyper-capitalism and all other types of isms as governance protocols, maybe that is the extraordinary and that the ordinary for the human race was to, you know, live in DAOs that are at least in the jungle up to 150. So it's the Dunbar number, right? So they afterwards fork and they split into smaller communities. Fascinating. And so basically maybe blockchain is just our natural tendency to now revert to what is the natural socioeconomic organization, that suddenly this idea of a megacity in China that included Tianjin, Beijing, and Hebei for 150 million people is actually not that great. And then maybe these smart cities where we take communities where they have all these integrated ecosystems and that network of networks is the way to go, and that Africa and Latin America are succeeding because they work in regional economic cooperatives and not in state nation stuff. Because it makes no sense that a tribe that is between uh, Kenya and Tanzania, that, that, that border means absolutely nothing. And so you have the, the, the East African Federation, you have the ECOWAS, you know, Western African, SADIC in the South. So I think that we're starting to revert with the help of technology, to our natural tendencies, which are more distributed and that are governed by consensi and are governed by this ability to collaborate. It can be collaborative, pure collaboration, or collaborative competition. And that, that's what excites me for, for the future. Healthcare, in that sense, is just a mirror of what society is going to be. So healthcare in the U.S. might revert to retail health, and we want to do CVS and Walmart, because that's the way we consume things. In Africa, it's going to look very different because people are closer to nature, and they eat healthier food, and they work in smaller communities. Different parts of the world will do uh, different things, and I'll end by just saying that we need to remember that technology does absolutely nothing. It's what people do with technology.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that's that's probably a great place to end things. Uh, but I wanted to ask a question first. We've mentioned a few uh, of your uh, pieces that you've written. Where can listeners get access to, to some of this content?
2: I think the best is to ping me on LinkedIn. I post on LinkedIn in short form. I, I used to write quite a bit on Medium. And you're more, more than welcome to look at Medium. I have a couple of posts on, of course, the ARC website and previous podcasts and white papers that I wrote with you. Um, But uh, uh, I think that life's too busy and people don't have time to spend on a a long, long long-winded article. So uh, short form, and if there's a topic that anybody wants me to write about or ask a question, please do so on LinkedIn. I I, I like to be challenged. I like to be pushed uh, to, to create more material. And so, I think that LinkedIn is, is the best uh, place. It's professional. It's, I would say, as much as possible, devoid from uh, toxicity. That's why I uh, maybe uh, avoid other social platforms. But uh, I, I am very, very um, optimistic and, and, and share the open and open source and decentralized uh, vision that ARC has and and that uh, we should hedge and bet on innovation that will make this world a, a, a better one.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kahana. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation and we look forward to having you back uh, sometime soon. Thank you, Frank.